One, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled for there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in, Ju in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Eli Melech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Eli Malek, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for another opportunity to think about and hear your word. We pray, Father, that your spirit would be with us today to move in our hearts and minds and to help us, Lord, to understand your word and bring about transformation in our lives. We pray that you are honored today. And Lord, we uh, seek that, that you, your name be lifted up and that you receive all of the glory. Uh, Lord, help us to understand what you have to say to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So during my later college years, uh, the time when I was attending college in the city of Houston, Texas, uh, I was attending a church at that time that was pastored by my father. And uh, because of my father was pastor of the church, uh, there were a number of my family members that attended that church as well. And so one of the things that we like to do sometimes, we did it with other church members, but sometimes we did it as a family, was that after service, we would get together and we would go out to eat when service was over. And that was just kind of some of the things. And on this particular Sunday, uh, people had some free time on their schedules. Not everyone, but a few people did. And so we got together, a number of us, uh, and decided to go, to go to a restaurant. So we all piled in various cars, some rode with others. Uh, we rode off across town to make it to this restaurant that one of my cousins recommended to us. Uh, it was a restaurant that's very similar to Golden Corral, uh, and that is a family buffet style. Uh, the furniture or, or the accoutrements inside were a little bit uh, more formal than what you would probably find at Golden Corral, but uh, it was that kind of environment. So uh, once we all made it in after church service, getting out in the afternoon, uh, we had a chance to, to make our way to the buffet to, to feast on the different edible offerings that they had there at the buffet. Uh, we each piled our plates up and made, it way, made our way back to our table and we sat down to eat and talk and enjoy the food. And as the, the day was progressing and the meal was progressing, there was a point in the conversation where my older cousin who was sitting right next to me, Lee, um, he started to slur his words. Uh, I originally thought, I, thought I was sitting at the table, I started laughing, thinking that he was joking around playing. Uh, but as he kept talking and he couldn't seem to get control of it, uh, we thought something was wrong, but then what really tipped us off, there was an issue was that when one side of his face started to look different than the other side of his face, that caused concern. Immediately in that moment, some of our older relatives who were sitting at the table, and of course Lee was in his early 50s at that point, 
they decided to stop the eating and feasting and call the medical authorities. And that's what they did. And of course, he was rushed to the hospital. We later found out that he had had a stroke. That's what he was experiencing at the table. Uh, and sadly, that radically changed his life for the rest of his life. Uh, he had been a man who had made a career in lawn care, had worked outdoors, but now, because of the stroke he had, he was confined to a hospital bed for the rest of his life. Uh, he was not able to fully recover. See, there's a reality that sometimes in life, there are some unexpected events that show up, and we are at the mercy of those unfortunate and unexpected events. And they can put us into a needy position in life. Uh, we don't want them to occur, we don't ask for them to occur, we don't request it, and often they show up without warning uh, in life. And then it becomes upon us as Christians, the question becomes, how do we as Christians respond, excuse me, respond to those situations when they show up in other people's lives? Now I realize that we're currently living in some very chaotic times. Just if you were to review the news as of late, you would find out there would probably be some of these headlines you would see. There are some places in our country, a few places, who want to defund police departments. Some of the southern and western states in our country, of course, are having surging, record-breaking numbers of new cases of the coronavirus that are causing them to have to reverse the forward progress that they had made. In my home state of Texas, of course, the governor just recently had to uh, close the bars again to restrict the amount of occupancy into the local restaurants. Uh, and then close the beaches that had been open because of the, the coronavirus. There's the chaos of uh, historic statues being defaced and torn down, as even one gentleman who was calling that all statues of Jesus be torn down as well in the process. Uh, we see that there are heated debates in various places throughout our country about the mandating of West marrying in other states. And then there's talk of a, another stimulus check, perhaps, to come out to address economic woes that are uh, addressing or behooving our nation, and so uh, troubling our nation. And so there's all this chaos that's going on. And in light of all that chaos that's going on, there's just this idea that uncertainty about what's going to happen to the United States of America is just swirling around in the air. What's going to happen next year? What will the country be like? We don't really know. But in the midst of all of this uncertainty, in the midst of all of the chaos that's going on, there are a few things that we can be still certain of. One, we will always be tempted in the midst of chaos and when life is out of sorts to revert to an inward focus. Where all we're concerned about is our own welfare and our own good. Secondly, we can also be certain that there will be people like my cousin Lee who, though the chaos is going on, they will fall serpent, fall, uh, fall victim to uh, unfortunate circumstances uh, that end up putting them in a position of need. And we can be certain that our call as Christians has not changed to those who are in need. So our series is called Following the Faithful. That's the series title you see on the screen behind me. And today, as we look at some vignettes from Ruth's life, we don't have a whole life, just a few short stories to make a point. Uh, that the author wants to point out to us, we're going to draw out three main ideas that remind us about our call towards those who are in need as Christians. So three things. First thing that I want to raise, the idea or concept that I want to place before you is this. When people find themselves in need, we, that is Christians, believers, and followers of Jesus Christ, should reach out to them with sacrificial love. We should reach out to them with sacrificial love. 
So now we come to the text, we find ourselves, as you see in verse 1, we are dropped within a period of Israel's history known as the Judges. This is a time when the nation is in moral chaos. So there's chaos going on in the nation. And it's in this context that we find this, what turns out to be a bright spot of what God is doing with the family of Naomi. It doesn't start off that way. It starts off in a very dark way, with a, a shadow over the story. We find that Naomi, her husband, and her two sons are in a, a bad situation. There has been a, a food shortage, a famine. And because of that, they decide to relocate, to move where there is more food readily available. And so they decide to, to move across the border uh, into another country called Moab, which of course were distant relatives of theirs. Uh, and we know from some historical discoveries that the language that Moab spoke was some form of dialect uh, similar to Hebrew. And so it would have been easy for them to make the communication change. And we can understand why they would want to move to Moab, because if language was not a problem, it would be that much easier to establish a new life. It would be like if today the coronavirus caused a food shortage here in America and Canada had food, and they opened the borders up and said, if you want to move, you can move. Some of us might make the transition over to Canada. It's that kind of idea going on here. We find out that once Naomi's family settles in to their new home in Moab, and some years pass, unfortunately her husband passes away. Now there's grief that comes along with that, but Thankfully, she still has her two sons with her. And over the next 10 years, uh, she does at least have the joy of watching them take wives. And, and they do take wives, and they marry. Perhaps somewhere near the end of that 10-year period, that decade, more grief follows. Uh, we don't know why, we don't know when, but both of her sons also pass away. She, and she is left with only the two daughter-in-law that she has gained by marriage, uh, to be the only family that remains around her. Now, she's in a desperate situation as a woman in that culture at that time that was mainly geared towards uh, males, having males for protection and security. And that's why girls often stayed with their fathers until they married and came under their husbands to be able to have security and function in society. But here we are, you have three women without husbands who are living in that type of society. Ruth, of course, uh, is the daughter-in-law of Naomi, and so is her other daughter-in-law, Orpah. And Naomi now realizes the situation of desperate she's in. Uh, one writer said it, it's, it's almost like she's now instantly become homeless. And so as a result of that, she decides, well, if I'm going to be poor, I better be poor back at home than in a foreign land. In addition to that, she had already heard good news about home. The Lord had reversed the situation of the food shortage in Bethlehem. Now there was food. So it only made sense now to go home where there was food also, but at least you knew the culture, you had relationships, perhaps there could be those to aid you in your social network to help you survive now that you were husbandless and sonless. And it's in this context that we get to see what sacrificial love looks like. We see sacrificial love and Ruth's devotion, first of all, uh, to Naomi. So upon deciding to return home, uh, Naomi has... Uh, looked out in a sense to, to have two very good daughter-in-laws. And they decide that Naomi is going to go home, but they don't want her to go home alone. They decide they're going to leave their own families in Moab, their own country, and travel back with her to her home and be with her uh, alongside her in life, perhaps because they understood a woman's situation, and they, they recognized that. Well, in the process, uh, Naomi decides, hey, listen, I understand your heart. I'm so glad you guys have been some 
great daughter-in-law, so glad to have you in the family. But there's just the reality of life that if you travel back with me, this is probably not going to work out well for you. You're going to be a foreigner in Israel. There's going to be some concerns there. Uh, it's probably better because you're still young, you can remarry and, and start a family, that you go back to your parents' house where you can find security under your parents' house and then find a new husband and start a new life, have kids, go on with your life. You're still very young. I'm past that age of doing that. Uh, and through th reasoning with them, uh, although they wanted to go, Orpah decides that what, Ruth, what, what Naomi has said makes sense. And so she decides to return home. And so that's what she does. She kisses her mother-in-law and makes her way home. Ruth, on the other hand, has a different version of things. She, she will not be persuaded to return. Instead, when she has time to say goodbye, she holds her mother-in-law, hugs her tightly, and instead swears an oath to her uh, in the text. And that's what we see uh, in chapter 1. If you look at chapter 1 with me, you'll see that there. And these are words that you probably heard in a wedding situation. But this is actually words that were from a, a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law as she makes this oath. Picking up at verse 315, we find these words. Uh, and the, the, the first she, of course, is Naomi. And she says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Where, you. where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. When you die, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if nothing but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So Ruth is sacrificing the possibility of returning home to a people that she had known, to a culture she had known, to a family who would most likely, hopefully, look out for her welfare and to the possibility of finding another husband in her own culture that would provide for her and in which she could find security. She gives all of that up to be able to follow Naomi back to a culture that she does not know and to a, a foreign setting in Bethlehem. That's one of the ways we see her sacrificial love. We see it also when she gets back to Bethlehem with Naomi in her actions that she works tirelessly to provide for uh, Naomi and herself in Israel. Chapter 2, verse 2. Notice what the text says here. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Now that's another verses that I'll, I'll highlight for you without reading them so that you get an idea of what's going on with Ruth. In uh, chapter, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2, we get a report from the foreman about the work ethic of Ruth, in which he says she's been working all day until Boaz had showed up, and only basically taking one break. In verse 17, we read about the kind of productivity she had. Not only did she get out in the field, but she was a hard worker because she was able to gather up large amounts of grain, more than normal workers would have. And then in verse 23, we see her dedication to the cause as she works over a period of time some Perhaps it looks like about two months of, of reaping of the harvest where she was able to work for that time. When you put all these factors together, you add up all the clues, you see how dedicated Ruth is to loving her mother-in-law. It's a picture of, picture of sacrificial love. 
And just in case you wonder whether or not that's the right interpretation, if you look at verse 11 of chapter 2, that's exactly how Boaz seems to take it. He sees it as a devotion to her mother-in-law, Naomi. So not only do we have her devotion in an oath that she makes, not only do we have her devotion in a work ethic, but we also see her sacrificial love and devotion to her mother-in-law when she puts the interests of Naomi and the good of her well-being before her own personal interests. This shows up in the form of an arranged marriage. Notice Ruth's response that will affect uh, a plan that, that Naomi lays out for Ruth that's going to affect the rest of her life. You have to remember now, uh, there are some clues in the text that give us the idea that Ruth is still a young woman. Boaz, an older man. Right? So, so she has a choice to perhaps marry a younger man. But that's not who her mother-in-law has in mind for her because she's thinking about the welfare of the family. And so she says, I know that you would have thought about perhaps some of them, but I have somebody I want you to marry, and this is the line that I want you to go down. This is the direction I want you to go with your life. And I want you to notice in chapter 3, verse 5, how she responds to her mother-in-law's plan for an arranged marriage. And she replied, being Ruth, all that you say, I will do. Now remember, Ruth herself is grieved, and her period of grieving seems to have come to an end because her mother-in-law now is, is proposing for her to, to, posit, to, to, to proposition uh, this gentleman, Boaz, with a marriage proposition. Uh, and she's willing to do it. But why is she willing to do it? Because of her great devotion and sacrificial love towards Naomi. So she shows it in her devotion by an oath. She shows it through her work ethic and working tirelessly to provide for them. And she shows it in putting the interest of her mother-in-law before her own interest. And we know exactly what this, like, what this is like to receive sacrificial love. You heard it in the video that we just mentioned. Because we've been recipients of sacrificial love just like Naomi. The person who sacrificed for us, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He willingly died on a cross in our place to pay for our sin. And as Paul writes to the Romans, he says, this was an act and a demonstration of love. He showed his love toward us by giving his life on our behalf. And so the scripture said, in light of that reality, that you have received an amazing, wondrous love from God, through Jesus Christ, that you are called, you are compelled to show that same sacrificial love toward others. And we see this played out throughout the New Testament in a variety of passages. Let me offer to you two examples. Paul, in writing to his student in ministry, Titus, who was an elder at a church that he sent to set up a church and put things in order there at that specific church. He says to them, he says to him these words, he says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. The Apostle John says something similar when he writes to believers. He says this, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. John seems to have the expectation that when your heart has been transformed by God's love, and God's love has been placed into your heart by the Spirit's presence, then it ought to flow out to you in relationships toward others. 
But there's something else that the text lets us know about demonstrating sacrificial love. We have to know that when we demonstrate sacrificial love, that it will not be an easy process, nor will it always be appreciated by the ones we show the sacrificial love to. We see this in the book of Ruth as well. So uh, Ruth, Ruth takes a high risk by leaving her own culture, by leaving her people group and her family to go with her mother-in-law to a land that she had not previously been acquainted with and into a place where she might be rejected. The reason why we say that this is a risk is because when you consider passages like Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 6, which in that text what it says is that the Ammonites and Moabites were not allowed to come into the assembly of the Lord until the tenth generation because of the way they had treated Israel when Israel sought to enter the promised land. And so there might be a negative attitude towards a Moabite showing up in the culture because of what was written in the law of Moses. So you can understand she's taking a huge risk by going back to someone who might not be liked by the people of the land. In addition to that, we also see that Naomi does not really appreciate the sacrifice, at least initially, that Ruth is making. Notice how she responds to the women when she first shows up in town. They're like, you've been gone for some 10 years, and look who's back. Isn't that Naomi who's been gone, who left? Notice what she says in the text. Verse 19 of chapter 1. So the two of them, this is Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Naomi has to hear it to do with the idea of pleasantness. That's what her name means. Call me Mara. You remember Mara, the place uh, when they were traveling was a place of bitter waters. Here she's referring to, call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Notice in the text what Naomi says. She said, I went away full, referring to my husband and my two sons, but I've come back empty. I've come back empty-handed with nothing. But did she really come back empty-handed? Who was standing right by her side faithfully? Ruth. But she doesn't count her in as someone to be accounted for. She can't see Ruth as a provision by God because her pain has blinded her and she has blamed God for the tragedy in her life. Now, when we look through the text of Ruth and we begin to examine all the things that are said about God, one of the observations that we make is that Naomi is the only one in the book of Ruth that speaks negatively about God. But the writer, the narrator, outside of Naomi's perspective about God, paints a very positive view of God. As a matter of fact, he paints God as Naomi and Ruth's ally, not enemy. But she can't see it that way. Notice what the author does. One of the ways we see this is that the author, uh, instead of talking about the family, he does not attribute the family to God or the loss of her husband and the son to God's action. But what he does attribute to God is the fact that the famine was brought to an end. It was the Lord who brought the famine to an end. And he is the one who also provides Ruth for her so that she does not have to journey alone. But she's blinded to it because her pain has taken over. So she cannot appreciate Ruth's presence. The reason I raised this point is for this, that when you reach out to people with sacrificial love, you've got to know that you're taking a risk 
You also have to realize that there will be times when you reach out with sacrificial love to people to show them that love because of Christ, but they will not always appreciate what you're doing for them. Amen. And you have to be aware of that when you engage in this process of loving them. Let me illustrate that for you. So I have another relative, and for the sake of the illustration, I will call her Mary. So Mary uh, was at a point in her life where her mother uh, lost her rental home. Her mother was had worked out a deal where she could, on her limited income, afford a specific home that she was able to rent. And uh, the owners of the home uh, came to a point where they wanted to, to get out their investment in the home. So they decided no longer to rent because I guess it wasn't enough money. They decided to sell the home to get out the money. So they decided to sell, which meant her mother now would be without a place to stay. So Mary decided, seeing her mother's predicament, she decided what I'll do is talk to my husband and see if we can bring my mother to live with us. And some of you who are married understand how uh, that can be a stressful situation because not always does your spouse want uh, their mother-in-law living with them. And so in this case, she talked to her husband, and her husband said, yeah, let, let's do that. Uh, let's bring her to live with us. And so she did. She moved in with them, and for the next 10 years, they took care of her needs, taking her to the doctor when she needed transportation, providing food and shelter, and helping her out and visit to see friends, and to, to be able to do all the things that, that normally happen in life. And then about the near the end of that 10 years, her mother, uh, early in the morning, had a really bad fall and uh, broke some things that ended up causing, uh, as the outcome was the deterioration of her health. And so as her health began to deteriorate more and more, there, there came a point at which her husband and she could no longer provide the necessary care to be able to care for her in the home in the way that her mother needed it. So they searched out in a variety of places to look for what was the best place that they could put their mother to make sure that she can be cared for. Some of you know when you put your parents or grandparents in homes, you've really got to check them out to make sure that they're not being mistreated. And that's what they did. Interviewed a number of places, found the best place they could afford, put her there. And then over the years, the next five years, they took time to, to check on her weekly. Mary made regular visits to her mother. Uh, they decided, her and her husband decided that they would foot the bill for the expenses because they knew that her mother could not afford to pay for the home. So they decided, we'll pay for it. Every month, we'll pay the bill uh, and make sure. And then any needs that she has that come arises, any expenses that she has comes up outside of even paying for home, we'll pay for those as well. And so that's what they did. And over the next five years, they took care of her until she finally passed away. Now, over that 15-year period, there were some moments in that 15-year period where there were some conversations that happened and some comments that were made that let Mary know that her mother did not always appreciate what she was doing for her. But then Mary said to herself, listen, you don't appreciate it, you can get out and walk the street then, sister. No, what she said was, she humbled herself and said, listen, I am committed to caring for you because you're my mother. And she loved her through all of that because that's what sacrificial love does. It's costly, and sometimes it's not appreciated. But what drives us as Christians to continue to love when we don't receive the same type of treatment back from those who we're trying to minister to is that we look to Jesus Christ and see that's how he loved us. And because Christ loved us that way, we love others in that exact same way. That brings me to the second concept in the text, and that is this. That as we reach out with sacrificial love to those who are in need, we must trust in God's providence. 
We must trust in God's providence. As you read the text, you'll study it, you'll stumble across it. He mentioned it in the video, but it's there. He didn't emphasize it, but it's there in the text. Let me show you that now in the text, chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And he said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to a part of the field belonging, belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elon Malek. Now remember, take into account what you've got going on here. Ruth is a foreigner. She has no knowledge of where people's property lines lie. She's not been given any information for Naomi about where she is to glean. Naomi stayed at home. Ruth is going out just into the fields to be able to work. And she does ask permission, as we find out, from the reaper's uh, report about her that she had asked to glean in the field. But it so works out that if she makes a random choice that she surveys the fields and the opportunities she has to glean, she just happens to choose the specific field of the one man who is godly and would be the most beneficial to them. Now the narrator, the way he phrases it there, is almost like it's like he's winking his eye at you. It looks like it just might have been chance or love. But what the narrator is really emphasizing here is that this is not chance, this is not luck, this was not some random occurrence that just, ha just happened, this was divine providence at work. And the reason we know that God often works this way is because we already know from Scripture that God cares for widows, those who are on the margins of society. And we also know from Psalm chapter 18, verses 25 and 26, that God responds to those who are faithful with showing himself faithful to them. And so when we look at the fact that Ruth didn't have much to offer, uh, she's a, a widow like her mother-in-law, she doesn't have anything monetarily to offer, but what she has is her youth and her work ethic, and that's what she offers. And what we see then is that God takes what she has and uses that, uses that to provide for, the, for them and to bless her efforts to work out his plan in their life so that these two widows can be taken care of. Well, it tells us that we may not have a lot to offer the person that we want to minister to. But it's not a bad thing that we don't have a lot to give. Whatever it is that you do have, you see a need that you want to minister to, use what you do have. And God is able to take what you have and use that to benefit them, even though you don't see how on the front end. There's just a reality that sometimes God shows up in unexpected ways in life to help us, even though we don't know he's going to do that. Because he orders the events of our lives and we seek to serve others. And that's what we call providence. Sometimes it looks to us like luck or chance and it just so happened to work out. But it was not luck or chance because there's a sovereign God running the universe. Let me give you an illustration of what this might look like in a different way. Uh, what God's providence would look like showing up in someone's life. So one of the stories I read this week about providence that I thought was an interesting one was about two missionaries. So there were two missionaries who were working in an unnamed country who had a hostile view towards uh, Christianity and would not allow any Christian literature into the country. But the two believers, the two missionaries felt that, that there was uh, the best way to show love to the people of the country was to, to let them have the word of God in their own language so that they could come into a relationship with God. And the best way to do that, even though they knew they couldn't stay around and have conversations, was to put Bibles in their language in the hands of those people. So they decided to, uh, at risk of imprisonment, to smuggle 300 Bibles into the country. So they loaded up their van and they decided to make their way into this country. 
Well, although this specific route that they took, there was a tunnel. And because the, the van was way down with the Bibles that were in the back, they pressed down the suspension of the van, and they had just enough where they could skim under the surface of the tunnel. They made it to the other side, and they were able to connect with whoever they were there to meet with and to unload all 300 of those Bibles so that they could be distributed throughout the country to those who had not heard about God so that they could come into a relationship with God through Christ. Now, this created a problem for them because on the way back, now that the Bibles had been unloaded, the van suspension had been lightened, so now the van could not make it through the tunnel. What were they going to do? They trusted God, and they started to drive back, not sure of how it was going to work out. And it just so happened that on their way back, there had been a checkpoint set up, and the police forced them to stop. Now, you might think that was a bad thing, but it worked out to be a good thing. The police decided that there were four officers that they needed to be, to be traveled, taken, or carried to the other side, and they selected their vehicle and said, look, you have this nice van here, you've got some empty room in the back. Your vehicle is just the perfect vehicle to put our soldiers in. So we want them to ride with you. So they put the soldiers in the back, which weighed down the vehicle, and helped them to get under the tunnel to the other side. Was that love or chance? Divine providence. See, when we seek to love others, we've got to trust that God is also seeing what we're doing and involved in the situation. And that's what I believe we see in the Messiah's life. I know that Ruth in the text didn't realize that. She's a Moabite. She's just coming to understand who the God of Israel is. She's becoming acquainted with him. But that doesn't stop God from being involved in her life. But the Messiah, he was fully aware of God's providence in the world. And he lived that way in his life. One of the examples we see during his ministry was on the boat. And I, I, I totally identify uh, with the disciples. When uh, Jesus was asleep on the boat, uh, in Matthew chapter 4, and they were terrified because there was a storm going on. You put me on a boat with a storm, boy, that's a bad situation. And so they're afraid, and they say, Lord, why don't you wake up? Because, you know, we're about to die here. But what is Jesus doing? Fast asleep. Right? He's not worried. Why is he not worried? Because he trusts that God is watching over everything that's happening in the world. And because of his trust in God's providence, it allows him to sleep without worry in the midst of a storm. So as you reach out in sacrificial love, knowing that there's going to be risk, knowing that there's going to be those who don't appreciate you, trust in God's providence that he's overseeing all that's being done, and he'll work it out for his glory for, and for their good and for your good as well. That brings me to my final point from the text, and that's this. We should ask God to bless those who demonstrate sacrificial love. We should ask God to bless those who demonstrate sacrificial love. Let me first start off by defining what blessing is. Dr. Robert Chisholm, who's an Old Testament scholar from the seminary I went to, a Dallas Theological Seminary, defines a blessing this way. He says a blessing was a formal prayer in which a petitioner appealed to the Lord as the righteous judge to reward another for kind deeds rendered. Conversely, then, a curse would be a formal prayer in which a petitioner appealed to the divine judge to punish another for unjust actions. But here we're focusing on a blessing. And when we look at a blessing, we see this show up in several places uh, in the book of Ruth. Let me walk you through those texts. We see it in chapter 1 of Ruth, I mean Naomi to Ruth and to Orpah. Here's what the text said. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed him, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Naomi's blessing on her prayer to God as the judge of all the earth because of how they have dealt kindly and loyally with her is that God would bless them to find a new husband. And God does that for Ruth, at least we know, through the provision of Boaz. We don't know what happened to Orpah because the story doesn't follow her, but we do know that God answered that prayer in Ruth's case. We find another example in chapter 2. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, and under, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And God actually does that. How does he do it? Through the human action of Boaz, when Boaz shows amazing generosity toward both Naomi and Ruth. And later he marries her, and they have a child together, which makes her a full member of the community when she's married, and she is ultimately placed into the line that leads to the Messiah. We run across another example in chapter 2 at the end of Naomi towards Boaz. We find the text, and it says this, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Boaz, in his old age, receives a young woman, probably a beautiful young woman to marry, and he has a child. That brother is blessed. I'll say no more. <laughs> we observe another blessing at the end of uh, chapter 4, at the close of the book, that the people bless Boaz. And this is what they say, Then all the people who were there at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in everything and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. We see this prayer how ultimately answered in the very genealogy that's given at the end of the book. He does become, and his house does become fruitful, and it leads to the line of kings that ultimately rule Israel. Dr. Chisholm goes on to say this, God is predisposed to answer the prayers of blessing offered on the behalf of his faithful servants and to reward them for their loyalty and love. That God is recognized and God sees those who act faithfully and loyally towards others in relationships. And we offer prayers up. Uh, what Dr. Chisholm goes on to say is it works as a catalyst and God is predisposed. He has a heart towards blessing those who seek to live a faithful life. And so in light of that, we ought to ask God to bless anyone we see demonstrate sacrificial love, whether that's for our benefit or for the benefit of another. If we see someone demonstrating sacrificial love to, to another, we ought to then, in our prayer time, say, Lord, bless them. Bless them for the sacrificial love that they're demonstrating toward others. So during my last year of elementary school, my grandfather had a stroke at the age of 64. Uh, and this meant his life was also radically altered. Uh, at this point, he could not care for himself in the daily things of life uh, that often I would take for granted. Simple things like feeding himself, getting dressed, and some of those other things we do regularly every day without probably even thinking about it. It's just routine for us that we do. But for my grandfather, that was no longer the case after his stroke. 
So during the working hours, since my father was working and both and my mother was working as well, they had a nurse who came in most of the time. There were some times they didn't have a nurse, and some of you who work with nurses and understand how things work, sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And you have you have some periods where there's not coverage. But for most of the time there was a coverage and during the day. But that meant that every evening someone had to take care of my grandfather and take care of those things that he needed to get ready for eating and for bed for the evening. So my father would every night, seven days a week, go down faithfully to take care of my grandfather and do all the things that it needed. And so he would be several hours, four, sometimes five hours down taking my grandfather. Then he would come home late, go to bed, get up the next morning, and go to work. And in some of those periods when there was a lapse in the nursing, my father not only had to do the evening shifts, he would go down before work early in the morning and do the morning shift. Then he would head off to work. He would come home, do the evening shift, then he would get back home, and then he would finally go to bed and get up to do it all over again. And that lasted for five years uh, with my grandfather. It was somewhere near the end of that time, uh, right before my grandfather died, that my dad and my grandfather had come up with this habit of sitting down at the kitchen table for dinner and eating and talking. And on this particular occasion, as they were talking, my grandfather, I think his heart was just welled up with gratitude after seeing what his son had done for him. And he reached across the table because at this point in his life, he was a believer in Jesus Christ. And he said to my father, Son, may the Lord bless you for what you have done. My grandfather knew that he really couldn't do anything for him, but he knew that God could. And so he asked God to bless my dad because of the sacrificial love that he has shown to him. And that's what we as believers are called to do as well. When we see those examples of sacrificial love, we ought to bless those people. Ask God to do good for them because of the faithfulness and loyal love that they have demonstrated. So like the book of Judges, right now we are living in, in chaotic times. There was moral chaos then and there's chaos now. But like the book of Ruth, we don't have to join in the chaos. We can be light in darkness. See, during the book of Judges, they describe the times as these were times when people did what was right in their own eyes. We don't have to follow those examples. We have a different example to follow. If we'll choose to imitate the Messiah in the way that he lived his life in the world and show sacrificial love towards others, then we will find ourselves being light and salt in a dark and corrupt world. That's how we make a difference in the world that we have. Live like the Messiah, Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, and I thank you for what Jesus has done for us that gives us the ability to live and operate differently than the rest of humans by demonstrating sacrificial love. You've done that by cleansing us from our former sins and by giving us the gift of your spirit who works in us to will and to work that which is your good pleasure. He changes our desires and helps us to live a life that is pleasing to you. And so God, Give us opportunities to demonstrate sacrificial love to others. When you give us those opportunities, give us eyes like Ruth to see the need and to respond. Maybe we don't have a lot, but what we do have, let us offer in service to you as we seek to minister to them, trusting that you will make it all work out for their good. Lord, we want you to be glorified by our lives. So please work in them, we pray. In Jesus' name. Would you stand with us and sing our final song of the Lord this year? I don't want